The Wiz Kids had won it, Bobby Thompson had done it, and Yogi read the comics all the while. Rock and roll was being born, marijuana we would scorn. So down on the corner, the national pastime went on trial. We're talking baseball, Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball. The man and Bobby Feller, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially when. All right, everybody, welcome on back to Baseball History 101. On our previous episode, just a little short. If you hadn't heard it, make sure you go back and listen to Fernando Valenzuela. It was only about a 40-minute episode, so it's a quick, nice little thing for you to listen to on your drive to and from work home. Since it was so short, we decided we needed to offer y'all a second episode this week. So we're going to talk about the baseball and prisons, which is something that's been on my short board for a long time now. We just haven't had the time to really get to it. And, um... The big thing we want to start with, man, like you got 2.3 million people incarcerated in the United States. Whether they're federal prisons, state prisons, juvenile prisons, local facilities, and county jails. But the um, the extracurricular activities really benefit the prison system because they engage a lot. If they engage in a lot of extracurricular activities that are majority grouped into they group them into three categories activity, rec- recreation, and reintegration programs. And also reform programs, four categories. And um, so it's really good because it, these guys are, whether they're felons, criminals, whatever, it gives them things to ease their time there and gives them less time just to figure out how to get out of there. And it's, it's just really important to the prison system for these guys to have these activities. Mm-hmm. So, like the, the big benefit in, of recognized activities is proven to boost the self esteem of the inmates, which is a psychological benefit to them, and active, active participation in sporting activity, whether all male, all female, mixed, depending on the prison, it, it de- develops self esteem and things like that. And then there's, it takes up their time, man, because people are just sitting here doing nothing. And also it builds team building activities, which alleviates the rate of recidivism. And recidivism is people that commit crimes, go to prison, get out, and then end up right back in there because they don't know any better. So it's helping these guys, you know, develop and hone themselves as people. And it also makes sure that they're healthy, which is a benefit to our society because we're paying their medical costs. And there's been a lot of cutbacks in recent years with privatized prisons and things like this. Uh, people have actually been able to do these activities. And we're going to focus on a couple of well-known prisons mm-hmm. and jails. And also some of the ballplayers have been discovered in that. Yeah. Because surprisingly, um, there's been at least one, if not more, major league, four major leaguers who have been discovered by playing baseball in a prison. Yeah, and um, one of the prisons I was able to go tour last September, which all I know is Alcatraz, mm-hmm. and uh, it's just, it is what it is. It's, this episode is not going to be... The glitz and glamour of some guys' achievements is going to be the important thing that people are trying to avoid is playing ball in prison. Mm-hmm. All right, so we're going to start off with the group known as the uh, Booker T Fours, and then it's one of history's ironies that a prison baseball program intended to make inmates docile created an actual baseball team, you know, and um, they were the color team without a peer in the state of Kansas. So that's, that's a quote. And they sent four players to the Negro Leagues. Um, in the late 19th century, 
forward thing and Warren's introduced the game and their charge their charges to encourage right behavior and it proved to be a hit, man, and baseball kind of started growing in prisons after that. Um it's progressive penal control and stress release, said R. W. McCartley. McClory. He was the warden of the federal penitentiary at Leavenworth, Kansas. And it takes the mind of the prisoner off his troubles and stimulates him better efforts. And it's a diversion from him raising hell kind of in the in the system. And it, um, there's four MA players that overcame nearly incalculable odds to reach that African American Negro Leagues, the ANL, mm-hmm. at the peak of the profession to open them up in the early twentieth century. Um, and ethnicity was kind of the natural boundary there. Black and white prisoners lived in segregated cell houses, ate at different tables, bathed in different showers, cheered and jeered from different pleasures. And it was a, it was a Jim Crow prison in a Jim Crow country. And, it's, and it, it, it was well before even Jackie Robinson. Yep. But the Booker T's dominated the Leavenworth League from the beginning, easily capping capturing Mackey's pennant in 1912-1913. The Brown Sox won only five games in 1913. Rare victories were built on the hitting and filling of inmates Joe White, a New York semi-pro, Danny Clare, a veteran of seven professional seasons in the minor Kitty, Cotton States, Texas, Western, and Pacific Coast Leagues. And according to the prison's New Era newspaper, Clare and White were the whole team. I could believe that. <laughs> but the frustration started to mount with the losses, and the Kansas City Star reported hard feelings and some racial hatred in the black versus white contests. To balance the scales, the prison officials added Indian and Mexican players to the white team, but the multicultural effort failed to stop the Booker T's. Schisms followed, and the team, now renamed the White Sox, broke into opposing factions, and the Red Sox, Gray Sox, and the Ironworkers were all formed in the hope of beating the Bookers. <laughs> but nothing worked, and two years of organized play, baseball was threatened to lose its effectiveness as a disciplinary tool. Wow. So people were starting to hit competitive with each other. Yeah. So it, it kind of... When you play... It, tur- it turned into gambling, I'm willing to bet. I'm sure it did. When you play games, you beat competitive. You compete to win. You know, it's going to happen. Dude, if me and you were to play Tibbly Winks on the carpet out in my living room right now, I'm here to whoop your ass. Exactly. I would do the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. But in 1914, the Booker T's and the reformed White Sox began playing another institutional, semi-professional, military and town teams. It was a rough and tumble game. So they were actually allowed to play people from outside of the prison. I'm sure under supervision. Of course. And um, somebody asked the editor of the paper, do you think it's fair for a man in the bleachers to punch a third baseman in the ribs when he's trying to catch a fly ball? <laughs> Yikes. Well, they played by no rules, man. This is yeah. The players. And there's a bunch of black prison players. They got, they got plunked. They got talked shit to. Yeah. You know, it. Corrupt umpires. <laughs> that's kind of, and that corrupt umpires, yeah, yeah. And that's kind of that's kind of where the history of baseball in prisons really started. Anything goes, man. <laughs> I, this is not like I've never been to prison, but prison rules. It's not like today's game. If like any of today's major league players went to a prison and played an all star team of prison players, it you know they would be shocked. I mean, they'd be like, "Why do you guys play so hard?" You know, it would be something like that. You know. There is a guy I want to talk about out of uh, Leavenworth. His name is Dave Wingfield. Mm-hmm. He started in Fort Waka, Arizona, where the um, he was a guy from Georgia. He named he joined the U.S. Army's 10th Cavalry in 1913, and that was the um, African American troopers, the Buffalo soldiers, mm-hmm. and they uh, did the border, chased the bandits, revolutionaries, and he was 5'10", 170-ish pounds. And he was great in the cavalry, held a you know, pistol shot. So you had guys like this playing in this league. Mm-hmm. Um, but it they spent his time uh, when he was off the White City Resort, which is a red light district, you know. You know what happens in a red light district? Stuff goes down. 
and um, got drunk, had a hooker, got in a fight, people saw shot shooting at each other, <laughs> and uh, he was 22 years old, and he was there, but he was a ball player. So yeah. things like that kind of started the revolution. And, you know, Buffalo Soldiers, like Huntsville, you know, off University Drive, there was a school called Calvary Hill. And on that side of the school where, of course, there's housing projects there, too, there, in 1898, during the Spanish-American War, there was a encampment of Buffalo Soldiers there. And that's where the name Calvary Hill comes from, because that's where the Buffalo Soldiers had a encampment there during the Spanish-American War. I'm born and raised. I didn't know that. Now you know. I'm one of the few born and raised in Austin. Me, too, man. You remember that commercial when you were a kid? The more you know. Yeah. I just had one of those moments. Yeah, so just a nice little Huntsville history connection with the Buffalo Soldiers. So that's really cool. I didn't know that. There you go. If y'all haven't been to Huntsville, Island, please come visit. Don't move here. <laughs> <laughs> we already got enough people. Good Lord. So after that earliest part of Baseball in Prisons, um, there's an article on the Baseball Hall of Fame website. It's called Baseball Behind Bars. It's written by Lady Catherine... Adrian S. Yeah, that sounds about right. She was it's the best I can describe her. Yeah. Best I can. She was a former intern for class but from twenty sixteen. Wasn't my class. But um, Matthew, having worked there, he might have some input on this. I mean, so as we discussed, baseball in prisons is a long history, you know, and just it's just amazing. As it says in the article, baseball has long been a great equalizer of people and a symbol of hope and renewal in the darkest of times of a person's life. So as we've previously discussed, this is a great way to at least give some fresh air, give some hope, give some put a smile on the prisoners' faces, you know, even though it sucks being in prison for whatever they've done to get them there, at least they get to have some fun during their stay in prison with baseball. And, you know, some examples like, you know, Sing Sing Prison in New York State, you know, they they had baseball leagues. So the officials of the prison, they, they decided to explore the idea of using baseball as a form of self-government. They're just like, you know, and like the, uh, the warden of the prison, Thomas Mott Osborne, agreed that baseball would be the best way of cementing an honor system among the men. The baseball program was incorporated into the Warden's, Warden Osborne's Mutual Welfare League, a series of programs designed to boost inmate morale and promote rehabilitation throughout through these self-government principles. So they use baseball as a way to, you know, like we said before, like previously, like we said, hey, you know, if you play baseball, this is going to help you be better people, you know, play as a team, be a better person somehow, some way, you know. And in 1929, the New York Yankees with, you know, Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig, a good chunk of Murderer's Row, they played an exhibition game at the prison, right, in, on September 5th, 1929. And, of course, the Yankees won 17-3 because, well, it's oh, the, the Yankees. They're the Yankees. They got Babe Murderer's Ruth. Murderer's Row Yankees. Right. You got Murderer's Row Yankees, you're going to lose. doesn't matter who you play, you're going to lose, you know. I hate to tell you all, but my problem with the Yankees is – Y'all were the best team around. Stop telling us how many times you won. <laughs> we already know. And you're in first place in the American League East right now. But of, of course, course they are. And Don't course, love it. Don't love it. Yeah. And of course, during that game, Babe Ruth, of course, hit three home runs. One of them, as legend has it, traveled 620 feet. I don't buy that. It rolled. Yeah, it probably rolled. <laughs> he also pitched in the final two innings of the, of the game. Allowing the Sing Sing team... They run each. So, okay, so they felt bad. They let Babe Ruth pitch, and they gave up two runs. But still, it's like, you know, think about things. It's like, can you imagine the Yankees today going to a prison, like Sing Sing or wherever, and playing baseball, <laughs> playing exhibition game? They're not, they, they, they can't do that. Rob Manfred would throw a hissy fit if that happened. And the Steinbrenners probably wouldn't allow it either. Oh, Rob Banford would throw a hissy fit if me and you sneezed the wrong way talking about baseball. So right, let's not get back into him. <laughs> yeah, but it's just it's. This is why I love baseball history. There are things that happen during the history of the game that would never happen today, and it blows my mind every time I find out or read something about it. That's why, I, and I'm sure it's Patrick feels the same way. That's why I love baseball history so much. That's why 
whether y'all like our podcast or not, that's why we're having fun doing it. Right. I, I am learning something every episode. And another thing, like like I said, Yankees play exhibition game at our present. Major League teams would play exhibition games throughout the season. Like it wasn't just coming up during. Uh, oh, we got Tuesday off day. We're playing. Uh, we're playing. We're playing the. Right. We're playing my men's league team. Like if there is a minor league stop in between a road trip, they will stop then that city and play an exhibition game against the minor league team. Because you're off, we're off. Let's play. Like they did it all the time back in the old days. Now you you don't see that today. It's never going to happen. There's no way. I mean, Manfred again will throw his fit. You know, everybody in the in the players union will probably get mad. And I don't know. It's just be a dumpster fire. So again, you know, you, it's hard to imagine day that major league baseball teams would do this during the season. You know, instead of like you know during spring training on the way back up to the north. You know? I guess the financials were probably a lot different then too. So yeah, and they probably got like bonuses or something. Yeah, I mean, they show up and I was like, hey, here's a $100 bill for being here. $100 in 1920 is a lot different than $100 now. Yeah, yeah. So. And, you know, and so throughout, so the papers of the day note the game, the the, the Yankees inmates game, as having been chiefly a ball signing exercise. Exhibition games between inmates and big leaders like this one show just how important this social experiment became in the lives of the inmates in the history of baseball. Absolutely, 100%. Right? And then in in a, a jail, in, a, jail, a prison in Georgia, Atlanta, Georgia, they also had, you know, baseball going on there. And there was a team they called themselves the Giants. And they had a, uh, I guess, they had a black pitcher. Unfortunately, it doesn't say his name, but uh, they nicknamed him the Black Matty as an homage to the great right-hander for the New York Giants, Christy Matthewson, right? He was that good. People are comparing him to Christy Matthewson. That's, you must be pretty damn good. Again, even though you're the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary, that's still pretty damn good. You're getting compared to a major leaguer, you know. Yeah. You must be doing something good. That was like me getting compared to the uh, right-handed Randy Johnson in the damn men's league, you know. Yeah. I throw hard. I'm not lefty, but I'm tall. You know? You're tall and you throw hard. And so here's here's a good so here's the cool thing about the Atlanta. Are you smart? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not cool anymore. Here's the cool thing about the Atlanta Federal uh, Penitentiary Baseball. On their opening day of the season in April of 1913, the, the the opening day was attended by all the conventional ceremonies of the big league, including a parade led by the prison band and the raising of the previous year's championship flag, which was worn by the Giants. A team of men from the penitentiary stone cutting shop. Yeah, a team of men from these. So the Giants were made up of the team from the from the penitentiary stone cutting shop in the Atlanta future. So that's really cool. So you know they had a pomp and circumstance even in prison. They tried to imitate the pomp and circumstance of opening day in Major League Baseball via prison. It's awesome. Yeah, people love winners too. Right. I mean, you don't see that. Man. You just don't see that today. Well, prison's so privatized now, also, which is a different political thing that we're not even. Gonna Right, I'm not. I'm, I don't. I'm not. I don't even. Especially in outside of Alabama, there's a big deal with it. I think John Oliver did an episode on that. So if you want to watch John Oliver talk about it, go for it. But we're not going to get into that. So now we're getting the um, history of baseball at Alcatraz. That's a big thing. I was uh, fortunate enough to be able to tour Alcatraz last September, and um, in 1955, they put speakers in all of the. Um, cells for the inmates which are very tiny imagine a cell the size of like a queen size mattress mm-hmm. that's about how big their cells are uh and october 4th 1955 they were able to they gave them all headphones and they had a jack in their wall they could listen to a radio station and it was the world series game seven dodgers yankees and for three hours, all the inmates listened to Al Helfer's play by play. Oh, yeah. And um, in the top of the fourth, when the Dodgers all-star Phil Hodges drove in Roy Campanello on a two-out single left, the block went wild, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, like, baseball always brings people together. Always. And, um, and then Hodges did a sack fly in the sixth, scored Pee Wee Reese. 
They went wild again, and then Dodgers lefty Johnny Podres went Padres went to shut out New York's lineup for a two-zero victory in Brooklyn's first World Series win. And I'm going to show Matthew a picture. It's something I still actually saw on the tour. It's a uh, headphones still hanging. Period headphones hanging on the uh, headphone jet. Oh, that's really cool. Um, in 1958, the warden Paul Madigan credited an improvement to Rhode Island prisoners being able to listen to the Giants games. And we were on our tour there at Alcatraz last September. Mm-hmm. They um, they said that the inmates, if the wind was blowing the right way, would be able to hear all the parties of the people in San Francisco and stuff like that. And every now and then they'd be able to hear the roar of the crowd from the ball games. Nice. Because it's right there on the bay. Yeah. Um, and they said it gave cons a brief break from routine and structure. And the history on the island spanned both the military prison, federal penitentiaries, and then it actually there's a baseball that was signed by the Indians during their... A lot of people don't realize that Alcatraz was taken over by Native American Indians. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I think it was in the early 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, and they left a baseball signed. Wow. And that's, that's a cool thing that happened. But um, Executive Officer Lieutenant Colonel Ron Johnson was second command to Alcatraz Planet underneath General John B. McDonald and, uh, and played college ball at West Point. McDon- Johnson had played ball at West Point. And then uh, several post teams. And uh, so at the beginning of Alcatraz, on the rec yard, which I stood at home played on the rec yard, was awesome. Um, it was concrete. If you hit it over the fence, you were out because then your baseball's done for the day. We yeah. got to get an e ball on the poke. Yeah, I can't have that. Um, <clears throat> But they um they both built it and it was teams of guards versus players. Depending on what your rank was, it was guards, it was brass versus players, and it's a really cool deal that they were doing out there. That's awesome. And um, <laughs> then local ball clubs would take the boat out to Alcatraz. Yeah. And play these guys. And it was just you know, it was for honor, dignity. Keeping the guys intact. Um, I got some pictures pulled up right now. Like the Jeffersons win two at Alcatraz. Alcatraz counts it, trounces the California parlor. Fort Scott 9 swamps Alcatraz. Alcatraz prisoners win another game. You know, so like there was actually leagues going out to the island and playing on the recreation area at Alcatraz. And that was a really big deal. And Warden James A. Johnston has been a strong opponent of baseball at San Quentin, but then he didn't have a chance to get it started, so he took office at Alcatraz, and he made plans to add baseball to the program. And in 1936, a softball league with 60 inmates was a thing, and that's kind of the predecessor of Alcatraz in baseball. Yeah. No uniforms, and it featured shorter innings, but nobody, everything I've found, I couldn't really get anybody to found on the short innings. Um, they they kind of doing what baseball did now. They kind of modified the rules to let's get it done. Let's get back to you back in yourselves. Of course, yeah. Um, but I can't really find anything on that. I've been looking for it the last two three days. Um, they're in the rec yard, which was on a dirt diamond with a concrete outfield. Amateur league teams, all named after professional clubs. The Bees, the Oaks, the Oilers, and the Seals were all the amateurs. The Cardinals, Cubs, Giants, and Tigers were the league guys. And the amateurs engaged in friendly contests while the league games were pretty intense. Um, Lorenzo Moretta. Inmate number Marietta, Inmate number 338 AZ. Was a Mexican American criminal serving a 40 year term for assault and theft. And uh, he got there in 36 from McNeil Island. And uh, he batted 402 with nine homers and 45 rubies for the Cardinals. Also playing in the league was ex pro catcher Robert Cress. Oh, wow. Inmate number 392 AZ, who suited up for the Salt Lake Bees in 1917. Wow. Which my former roommate played for the Salt Lake Bees. Nice. Um, but then the pandemic happened, and they killed all the minor leaguers. And 
course, I, it, it was I, so think, I think I, I think if I think he went and played overseas, but oh, a guy named Tyler Carpenter, yeah. and then he played for the Spokane Indians in 1920. And he also played for several Northwest Pro teams. So there's a lot of there's a lot of big leaguers that have gotten themselves in trouble or guys with talent that wind up in this. Yeah. Um, guy named Emil Reichner played third base for Ensville and Rock Island of the Illinois Indiana Iowa League in the 20s, and he became a correctional officer from 35 to 61. And um, he rose to the rank of captain of the guard, and his love for baseball never wavered. So he was the uh, coach for the. For the guards, you know? So it's kind of cool. Even a place like Alcatraz that everybody thinks is this hard-ass, brick-hard, can't-get-away-from-here prison. Everybody on our island together kind of found one thing, and it was baseball. Mm-hmm. Baseball just brings people together. <laughs> well, sports in general do, but baseball seems like the most. You know? Yeah. Then there's also another Bay Area prison. It's uh, San Quentin. When I was in... When I was out west last year, we actually drove past there. You could see it. Yeah, it's course. not on in the way Alcatraz is, so it's a lot easier for them to play baseball. And as a lot of you listeners know, I do play in the men's league baseball league here. And the cool thing about San Quentin is they have a uh, MSBL Roy Hobbs baseball team. Nice. And um, there's 20-plus players and coaches on the A's, the San Quentin A's, and they play a full season from April through October against visiting civilian teams from the Bay Area and beyond. So they're a team in the men's league. And uh, they're called the home team because they're not allowed to play anything but home games. <laughs> they got a baseball field at the prison, and it's right there on the backside of the bay while Alcatraz is a knock, you know. Yeah. Um, and every year, more than a dozen local and out-of-state teams come to St. Quentin to play ball against the A's. And some have been coming for decades. Others have never even been inside a prison. And win or lose to visiting and players, per com, sqbaseball.com, are guaranteed a baseball experience unlike any other, man. And um, that's really cool to see the public come and do stuff like this for prisoners. Yeah. Because not everybody that's in prison is a bad guy. Yeah. Might have made a mistake. Yeah. And I'm sure murderers are on this team, you know, probably some guys with pot charges or... Yeah, like, or marijuana laws or something. Yeah. Um, also, if you go to sqbaseball.com, you can make a donation to continue building that program. <laughs> yeah. But... It's, it's really cool that San Quentin has done that. It's, they've been doing it for, I think, the early 70s, allowing, like, public teams... Like my men's league team, like our buddy Patty Cornell, Nick Cornell, um, all these guys I play ball with. Yeah. If we were living out there, we have a chance to go play with these guys. Yeah. That'd be something else. That'd be once in a lifetime opportunity for sure. Absolutely. Hell, Metallica even recorded a song in Clinton Prison. Yeah. A music video. What song? What song and of course, Johnny Cash did did a famous concert in Quentin Prison back in '69. That's where he did. That's where you got the, the, the quintessential picture of him fucking off the camera. I didn't realize that picture came from there. Yeah. I really respect that prison for being uh, forthgoing. And, cause you know, that's why I kind of what I studied in school was the law and justice. So. Yeah. Then the year before, he, you know, Cash played Folsom Prison. And so it was only fair that the next year he played St. Quentin. So, But anyway, that's that's how I know about St. Quentin because of John Cash. And then they do his baseball league. It's like, wow. So and it's just so in, on the on the uh, San Quentin baseball website, they have frequently asked questions. One, the first question is: Is playing baseball in prison safe? And it's probably the, the safest. I would say so. And, and, and they, the answer is: There are correctional officers and staff throughout the prison yard to ensure everyone's safety. However, visitors find that when they enter the prison, that everyone on the yard. Ball players, spectators, and others are incredibly welcoming, interested to engage in conversation, and completely dedicated to ensuring that visitors feel safe and comfortable in an unfamiliar environment. So, when I was in school at Columbus State, we went on a tour of a prison. Our professor of the class was high up in the front office of the prison, mm-hmm. and it was very incredibly organized. It was at um, Rutledge State Prison. 
I believe it's in Rutledge Shaker. Rutledge Shaker, okay. Um, right outside of Columbus, Georgia. And um, there's a big matter of respect when people come in. Like, people were just enamored with the fact that we were wearing blue jeans. Because wow. they told us to wear blue jeans and a white t shirt to come. Blue jeans, white And people were just, uh, those, those inmates were just enamored with the blue jeans. And they were all so cordial, like, hey, here's what you need to do to not end up where I'm at. Yeah. And things like that. It, as well, you know. Yeah. Of course, you had a couple of inmates that got themselves in trouble by doing certain things they shouldn't know while we were there. Right. But every time the warden gave us a tour, and every time the warden walked in, warden's on deck. Everybody stood there. Yeah. And they told us, you know, it's like it's a, a prison is a very safe place, it, you know, but. Yeah. At the same time, if you live there 24-7, I bet it's probably not because we all hear the movie stories and right. news articles. And, and there have been prison riots in the past. Yeah. So that does happen. So another question. If you, want, if you are an outside team wanting to play in San Quentin, what is required for outside teams to enter the prison? Each player must submit information for a background check and sign a release of liability waiver required by the California Department of Corrections. So if you get stabbed while you're here. Right, that's not on us, that's on you. Uh, these background I'm going to play tomorrow, let's do it. <laughs> these, these background checks require two months of lead time to process and must be completed before an outsider is allowed to enter the prison. The minimum age for entry to a prison is 18 years old. So no Bay Group teams are going to go play here unless you're 18, you know. But still, sounds so, like you need to knock the dust off your glove, Matt, and then go play in the prison. Let's yeah, go. let's go. Let's we'll get it. the Cornells. We'll get everybody. We'll go play. In San we'll just bring the we'll just bring the uh, the Huntsville Pirates who are undefeated right now. Yeah, we'll just so all, let's we'll, all go. We'll all go. We'll go to San Quentin. We'll have a great time. But we got to give them like two months in advance. <laughs> And then we got to figure out how to get out to California. If I lived out there and I was in a mid league out there, I'd 100% be down for that. Oh, yeah. And I'm sure they kind of have a hodgepodge team that goes out and plays those guys because certain guys probably aren't with it. Right. Yeah. But anyway, so that's all I got to say about San Quentin because it's just. Yeah, man, but that's been a league they've had for years and um, MSBO and the Roy Hobbs League both got there and played. And it's really awesome that they do that. Because just because you're a felon doesn't mean you don't deserve to, you know, get some leisure time. So since we're talking about the topic of prisons, um, there's a lot of people who have been indicted and have done time in jail. There were ball players. Um, like a guy named Willie Akins, he was served 81 days in 1983 to 1984 for buying, buying cocaine. And then he did 248 months and was released in 2008 after 14 years in prison for distributing cocaine. Um, and he played from 77 to 85 with the Angels, Royals, and Blue Jays. And he was a member of the 1980 Royals who won the American League uh, that year. There's a guy named Mike Ballas that um, didn't go to fight in the war and he served three years. Failure in to, World War Two, yeah, failure to report to Kaczynski's objective. Vida Blue served three months, which wound up becoming eighty-one days from eighty-three to eighty-four for trying to buy a blow. Yeah, Oil Can Boyd threatened his mistress's life, and he served one hundred twenty days. The life of his, the life of mistress, mistress's life, <laughs> threatening the life of his mistress. Yeah, uh, a guy named Gates Brown, B and E, he served twenty-two months before beginning his career. Okay. And he was sentenced from between 1 to 15 years, apparently. Let's see. Uh, Rent Camp conspired to commit theft. He served three years from 2005 to 2007. Baseball Hall of Famer Orlando Cepeda was charged five years in prison for possession of marijuana, released in 1979 after serving 10 months. Dude, five years for pot? Let's get real. That's ridiculous. Let's get real. Um... Let's see here. The guy that shows up twice here, um, a guy named John De Aquisto. Conspiracy, forgery, and wire fraud. And <laughs> he got sentenced to 63 months and he served four years. 
And then investment fraud, he got sentenced to 55 months, which served concurrently with his four years. Yeah. Let's see here. Lenny Dykstra, Grand Theft Auto, providing false false information. He served 15 months in 2012 <laughs> and 2013. Yeah. And then bankruptcy fraud, he was sentenced to six and a half months. He was sentenced to three years on the Grand Theft Auto, but got out with good time on 15 months. <laughs> and then also bankruptcy fraud, concealment of assets, money laundering, which was so concurrent with the previous statement. Um, yeah. Also, possession of alcohol. He deserves his own episode, honestly. Goes to a guy named Eubanks. Mm-hmm. And he served it in Leavenworth and Arena facilities. We don't. My man got went to jail for possessing alcohol, so I'm assuming that was during proposition. Yeah, my guess. And then Roy Evans got two years for bigamy. And he served 19 months between 1920 and 1922. <laughs> Ferris Fane served 18 months for growing pot. <laughs> With the attempt to sell. And he served, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. A guy named uh, Tom Farley got charged with murder for life, but he got pardoned in 1898 after serving 69 months. Nice. I'm not sure if that's nice or not, Matthew. No, I mean, 69, though, yeah. <laughs> Let's see. I don't see any more really big names on this list. Yeah, I mean, well, well, Dwight Doc Gooden's on the list. Well, he got a parole violation. And he served, like, seven months. There's a guy named Sammy Stewart. Let's bring Sammy Stewart up. Okay. First degree murder, life, paroled in night. All right, wrong guy. Possession of crack cocaine. Oh, Two yeah. years, served seven months in 91. Driving on a revoked license, five months, 1992. Drug possession, two months, 1996. Possession of crack and paraphernalia and larceny, two months in 1997. Drug possession, four months, 1998. Drug possession, five months, 2004. And possession of crack cocaine served 80 months, 2006 to 2013. And then you got Daryl Strawberry, 18 months for a probation ball in engine. Which only served 11 months up to two out of three. And I think that's really anybody that's notable on it that's been to prison out of. Well, Pete Rose was. Pete Rose went to prison for tax evasion. Oh, I forgot about that. From August of 1992 to January 1991. So he served five months. And uh, Denny McLean. He probably played tennis while he was there in one of the country club prisons. Yeah. Denny McLean. Yeah. Denny McLean, who was the last pitcher to win 30 games in the season, he got 23 years for racketeering, extortion, and cocaine possession, but the verdict got overturned after 30 months in prison. And then he got in jail again for conspiracy, fraud, theft from a pension fund, and money laundering. And he served, the sentence was 97 months, and he was released in 2003 after six and a half years. They caught him with a bunch of greenies, is probably what happened there. Yeah, and I read his autobiography. I told you I wasn't perfect, and he mentions that he met during the in, in the, the ninety-seven month, the six and a half years in prison. He met John Gotti Jr. because apparently they they try to. I, I got to read the book again, but they try to connect him and John Gotti Jr. to some sort of conspiracy or something. It was just like, <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> And this, so now we got to end the episode with this. There is at least one major leaguer who was discovered playing baseball in prison. And this gentleman's name was Ron LaFleur, right? He was from Detroit, born in 1948. And, you know, he was just in trouble throughout his childhood, teen years. Excuse me. And so. He was old, so he was arrested. So he was sentenced. He was arrested in January 1970 for armed robbery at a local bar in Detroit, and he carried a rifle in this armed robbery. And he was sentenced to five to fifteen years in prison at the state prison in Michigan, which is known as the State Prison of Southern Michigan, but it's also called the Jackson State Penitentiary in Jackson, Michigan, which is where the Goose Lake Pop Festival in 1970 happened. But anyway, so he's playing baseball in this prison, right? And he, you know, he, this was his first organized baseball league. He played, he didn't play little league. He didn't play in high school. This was his first 
organized baseball that he played in. So you're telling me the man never swung a bat before? Seems like he never swung a bat before. I mean, uh, you know, he he just didn't play, and he rarely followed the Tigers. Like he didn't, he wasn't a big Tiger fan, even though he'd been to a game once. He didn't play sports. This was his first organized sport, playing in prison league. That's absurd. That is absurd. And apparently he got very good because a fellow inmate at the time, Jimmy Kerala, he convinced his longtime friend Jimmy Butzikaris, who owned a sports bar or a bar in Detroit that was freaking by Detroit sports celebrities. He convinced this bar guy to talk to Billy Martin, who at the time was the manager of the Tigers, to check out LaFleur. So he's like, dude, I got this great player. I think he'd be great for the Tigers. Talk to Billy Martin, see if he'd be interested. Guy never played ball before. Never played ball before, and he got good in prison ball. I wish there were, like, stories or stats. Now, Ronald What year was this? 19... From 70 to 73, he was in prison. So I guess around 73, Martin visited, finally visited the, the penitentiary. So it's probably around like 73, we're like, hey. I'd have been a rock star in 73, shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he probably built, he probably gained weight, like he probably lifted weights too, you know. Yeah, that's the big thing about killing in prisons, man, because the, in, the inmates are getting bigger than the guards. And yeah. But that's just. That's such- why kind of baseball and thing, extra cougars are kind of dying in prisons because they're exercising and becoming in better shape than people that are guarding them. Yeah, it's so wild. So, Martin, Billy Martin said, why not? And he visited the Jackson State prison on May 23rd, 1973. And then, after seeing him playing prison ball, Martin was convinced that he was impressed that he was this guy had something. And Martin then helped LaFleur get permission for a day parole, like a, on like a one day only. And, and a, tryout. a one day free pass to go play ball. Right. And a tryout at Tiger Stadium the next month. Is this, I mean. Did this guy get pardoned out of prison or what happened? Is Brian so, so here. I'm excited to hear this. So in July of 73, the Tigers signed Ron LaFleur to a contract which enabled him to meet the conditions for parole. So he got parole. So I had a job lined up, so you're eligible for parole kind of deal? Yeah. Because you told me about this guy every day, and I'm like, I'm not going to look him up. I'll let Matthew tell me about it. Right. So. And so he was paid, his contract was $5,000. No, I'm sorry. He was paid a $5,000 bonus and $500 per month for the rest of the 73 season. And he played in minor league ball for the Clinton Pilots in Clinton, Iowa, in the Midwest League. And his manager was Jim Leland. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Really? And LaFleur hit 277, so that's good. He had a good good average. And then the next year, he's played in Lakeland, Florida for the Lakeland Tigers in Florida State League. And he's hitting 331 with 45 steals in 102 games. And he got promoted to AAA in Evansville, Indiana for the Evansville Triplets in the American Association. And he only played nine games. I bet we could get Jim Leland to call in and discuss this guy. Oh, man, dude. I, I bet we could make that happen. Yeah. we got to call the right I'm going to make that happen. And he could talk about, hey, tell us about Clinton, Iowa, 1973 with Ron LaFleur. Yeah, I what bet. Did, what did you think of him? I bet we could get, I bet if somebody came to Jim Leland and was like, hey, will you Zoom call us and talk about this? I bet he'd be like, you know about that? Yeah. What's he doing? I mean, he's, I mean, he's, not, he's retired from managing. He's got nothing to do. He's probably, he's probably playing with pups and. He's probably just some cows somewhere and smoking cigars. He's probably waiting for the Hall of Fame to get inducted by the veteran get inducted by the Veterans Committee. The fact he's not a Hall of Famer issue. Yeah. So he played nine games in AAA, and then he makes his debut in in August of '74 for the Tigers, right? And he's split in time in center field with veteran Tiger Mickey Stanley, but the next year '75 he took over the, the starting spot. And this thing, and here's the thing, he's known for, he was a base stealer. He was a good hitter, not much of a power hitter. But he had fleet feet. Duke could steal bases, yeah. And, you know, Tigers attendance rose in 76 the next year because they had him and Mark the Bird Fidrich on the team. And that brought interest, you know. And, you know, he made, in 76 was also his only all-star appearance. So he made the all-star team in 76. 
And, you know, he had career highs in 76. He hit 16 home runs at bat 325. No, I'm sorry, Next year, he had 16 home runs at bat 325, which were both career highs. But 78 was probably his best year because he led the league in singles with 153, runs scored with 126, and stolen bases with 68. And he finished second in the league in hits with 198, played appearance at 741, and bats 666. And he set career highs in games played, played appearances, at bats, RBIs, and walks that season. So literally two thirds of the time. Yeah. 66, two thirds of the time. Right. And the thing is that 78 season came out. They made a movie about him. And it's called, like, I think it's called One in a Million. The Ron LaFleur story. And stars the who you get I'm gonna ask you a question. Who do you think they got to play Ron LaFleur in that movie? What year did it come out? Nineteen seventy eight. It was a made for TV movie on CBS. If it was later if it was later on, I'd say Costner, but um The Ron LaFleur's a black guy. Shit. Who do you it's think they got to uh, play? Samuel L. Jackson, probably. Shit, I don't know. No, you're, you're going to be shocked. LeVar Burton. Mr. Reading, Reading Rainbow? Rainbow? LeVar Burton? He played one before in the movie. Right? LeVar Burton with the damn skinny shades yeah, from, Star from Star Trek? Trek yeah. Fucking LeVar Burton? <laughs> LeVar All right. Burton. <laughs> oh, man. So. The more you know. The more, the more you, you know. know. Rainbow. Rainbow. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. And so he stole 78 bases in 1979, but he didn't leave the league for some reason. How many bases? 78. That's a lot. I forgot. Oh no, no, Rick, that was Ricky's rookie year. He didn't leave the league then. Oh no wonder. Ricky was involved. <laughs> right, yeah. But we were talking about him already. So in the nineteen eighty he gets traded to the Montreal Expos. And he stole a career-high 97 bases. He led the league with 97 bases that year, National League, because now he's in the National League. And so, you know, he made it, his 97 steals made him only the fourth National League player since 1900 to have 95 or more steals, joining Maury Wills, Will, uh, Lou Brock, and Omar, nah, Omar Moreno. And Omar Moreno stole 96 bases in 1980. So he was one steal below. Poor Omar Moreno. He is one steal below. <laughs> Wrong with four in base dealings. Base stolen bases. And then the next year, he signed with the White Sox as a free agent. But, you know, he was getting old at that time. He was in his mid-30s, and his body was failing. And he only played like 100%. In the two seasons he was there, he only played 100 games. And the team released him in spring training of 83 because he just couldn't make it. That body can only do what he can do. Yeah. And LaFleur, you know, he stayed in, he tried to stay in baseball. You know, first he attended a uh, umpire school, but uh, it just didn't, you know, he didn't make, he didn't, I guess he didn't graduate. Like he didn't get a. He wasn't good enough to make a cut. Right. But in 1989, 1990, so there was a league in Florida called the Senior Professional Baseball Association. So, like, this was for, like, you know, middle-aged former major league players. They played in this league in Florida. So, like, a men's league for retirees? Pretty much. In spring training stadiums, you know. And so, yeah, because they probably still have a pop. Too. Yeah. So, LaFleur played in this league. He played for two teams in 1989. Um, he played for the St. Petersburg Pelicans and the Bradenton Explorers. And altogether, he had 328 in 44 games. And then next year with the Florida Tropics, he played 18 games, hit two home runs, and drove in nine runs. And he also had the second highest batting average with 403 with league folded. So he did pretty good in, in the limited amount of games. It's still like he had something in it. Even though at the time, he was 41 and 42, he still had some left, and then like he's managing. like some of the current guys we see playing ball. There's um, the guys from our childhood still playing ball. Like uh, oh, uh, Bartolo Colon still playing the Mexican league. Yeah, you and know? so is the Pablo Sandoval. Did you see him truck that catcher there? I did. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, that was something else. That's that's garbage baseball. Yeah, but yeah, but yeah. I guess the rules might be different south of the border. 
And then he managed a couple of independent minor league teams. In 95, he managed the Newburgh Nighthawks of the Northeast League to a 28-45 record. And then in 2000, he was uh, managing the Cook County Cheetahs of the Frontier League. Cheetahs. Yeah. And then he worked as a manager and coach in the Midwest and Northeastern Leagues. And 2003, he was a manager of the Saskatoon Legends in the Canadian Baseball League that folded midway through the season. But unfortunately, he's legal trouble. He could not escape legal trouble after his prison time. Because on September 27, 1999, the day, the last game at Tiger Stadium, of course he's there because he's one of the former Tigers. He gets arrested for unpaid child support. And I was like, ah, shit. The last day. At Tiger Stadium, you're there with the team to, to, for the festivities. And then he gets arrested for that. But At least that's not as serious as his previous crimes. That's just more of a, hey, you owe money. You got to go to right. court. So he wasn't, and, and to resolve that, he wasn't jailed in exchange for making payments. So he made the payments, but it was like, it's kind of embarrassing. And that's a distraction from the festivities. You're like, yeah, last game, Tiger Stadium. Oh, wait, why am I in handcuffs? Oh, no. <laughs> uh, and he's still alive today, but unfortunately, in 2011, he has right leg amputated from the knee down due to complications caused by arterial vascular disease. As a result from having smoked cigarettes since he was a teenager, lost 100 pounds, and drove with three as a result of three surgeries. And so he has a prosthetic leg and lives in St. Petersburg. So, Ron LaFleur is probably the most well-known person to come out of the prison and play Major League Baseball. That's mind-blowing. You know? And he made a career. He made a career out of it. He made it, they made a movie out of him. And got LaVar Burton to play him. Which, when I think of LaVar Burton, I just don't think of a guy who just goes to prison. Then the guy reading me books and showing me the pictures. Right. Or, you know, being on Star Trek, you know. I don't watch Star Trek, but, you know, being on Star Trek. Star Trek's trash. I'm after for Star Wars. Sorry if I'm sorry if I you know. Right. We're probably going to lose all of our followers now. If you, like, if you like Star Wars, talk to me. Wait, what? If you like Star Wars, talk to my uh, my girlfriend, future yeah. wife, Sonya. Yeah. Yeah. She got them. The twos and shit. But cool. But yeah, so I think that's all I had. That's all I can think of with the prisons, you know. I think we're good. I think we we actually gave y'all more of an episode than we we're planning to. We're pushing an hour right now, and that's more than the Fernando. Yeah, we're sorry, Fernando went short, so we're doubling down. And uh, yeah, but no, uh, my big thing is having studied the justice system in college and things like that. That's what I went to school for. Extracurriculars in prison are a very important thing. And especially when you get like an organized team. But a lot of prisons are killing that. And you got privatized prisons. There's more going to that. So we can get really political if you really want. But we're not going to. Because we're not a political podcast. We're not going there. Um, But I think we pretty much covered what we need to. Like San Quentin and Alcatraz. The origins of Bella Ball in prison in New York. Um, I think I pretty much got there. Yeah. And, of course, you know, if you guys want to check out you know, St. Quentin, if you want to donate money to them. You're actually able to, as a tourist, tour St. Quentin, I believe, but you have to put in a lot of advance notice. Right. Alcatraz, you just catch a boat and you go out there. Yeah, because it's no longer used as a prison. It's just a museum. Yeah. Yeah. And um, they had an Indian, Indian occupation in the early 70s. Mm-hmm. And um, they played ball there. The Indians played ball there, which yeah. is really cool. And um, I told you about that picture of that baseball I found today. Um, I'm not sure, but it, it's. It's so cool, man. Now, if you ever get a chance to go out west, Matt, and any of y'all listening, Alcatraz was like the one thing when we moved to San Francisco I wanted to do. Yeah. And it was, it was worth every bit of it. Smells like bat shit. Because <laughs> they got a bunch of bats and stuff. Yeah. There's a bunch of cool stories about how they could, with the wind was blowing right away, you could hear what's happening in San Francisco. So they'd have all these rich people over on the bay having a party. Mm-hmm. And these inmates just sit there and listen to it. And then they eventually got radio in their cells. 
Yeah, so that's a plus. So like to drown it out with their little cheesy ass headphones and Yeah. Also, before we end this podcast, go check out my latest shortstop article. Absolutely. About uh, the photomechanical print of Don Mincher when he was a Seattle pilot in nineteen sixty nine. It was just it was great to write about my fellow mine and Patrick's fellow Huntsville native. Yeah, he's a Huntsvillian. Yeah. My yeah, well known Huntsvillian, you know, and I'm glad and once again I'm glad that the Hall of Fame allowed me to do that. So, former Sutherland Commissioner. Former Southern League president, yeah, and former general manager and owner of the stars. You know, and this then, did, then he's got he's got his kids involved in baseball in this town too. Right. His know? son Mark Minger, longtime Huntsville High coach, and now he's the Athletic director at Madison Academy, so you know, and I like Coach Mitchell too. I mean, I I met both Mark and Don, and I, you know, I I like them both. That's so, a baseball fan they threw through, right? For sure, you know, and you know, Mark Don's just done a lot for baseball in this town, you know. Then we get him on a cat podcast. I'm sorry, what? You think we can get him on a podcast? Don Mitchell, Don Mitchell's dead. No, no. Oh, Mark, Mark Mitchell. He Mark. probably he probably could. You think we could pull that off? Yeah, we probably could. I mean, what, you know, we could talk about maybe we could talk about his dad. We could talk about his playing days. Talk about you know his experiences. Stars growing up and being a kid at Huntsville, uh, Joe Davis. Yeah, I mean, you which know, does attract to what's happening there. But yeah, becoming a soccer state, or he could talk about his career in in, in uh, high school baseball. Yeah. I mean, we could we could have so a he coach. played he played for the same high school coach I did, which we were. yeah oh yeah yeah yeah. I mean, who who mysteriously retired and then two days later signed a assistant job in Madison County. Wait, Butch Weaver retired? Yeah, he's going to be the assistant coach at Madison County next year. Wow. I know it. it Hustle, I mean, Hustle Times crap newspaper. They didn't mention anything about that. Yeah. I, didn't hear, I didn't hear anything about that. I had to hear it through hearsay. Grissom got a new baseball coach too, but like, it didn't make a, it just like, oh, well, this, the, 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 the coach just decided, I, it didn't make an issue of what Happened. I just saw on the Grissom Tiger Facebook page that he's no longer coach, and now they got a new guy. Coach Weaver applied for that job also. He applied for the Grissom job. Head job. The head job at Grissom. He didn't get it, obviously. So no wonder he's going to Madison County. That's crazy. Why would you turn that down? I mean, why would whoever was doing the search turn that down? Maybe because he's old. But um, we're not going to. We're going to quit boring you with our Huntsville politics. I know a lot of y'all aren't from here, and our Huntsville politics based political baseball. Crap. Yeah. Well, we appreciate you listening as always. Um, we gave you a short episode. We gave you a bonus episode right here with this one. And as always, I'm Patrick DeVault. I'm right here with my esteemed colleague, Matthew Carter. Y'all have a great day wherever you're at. And happy 4th of July. We'll see y'all next time. Rock and roll well, was being yes. born. Woo. Marijuana we would scorn. So down on the corner, the national pastime went on trial. We're talking baseball. Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball. The man and Bobby Feller, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. Well, Casey was winning, Hank Aaron was beginning, one Robbie going out, one coming in. Kiner and Midget Goodell, the Thumper and Mel Parnell, and Ike was the only one winning down in Washington. I'm talking baseball, Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball, the man and Bobby Feller, the Scooter, the Barber, and the Duke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey and the Duke. Now my old friend, the bachelor, well he swore he was the Oklahoma kid. And Cookie played hooky to go and see the Duke. And me, I always loved Willie Mann, those were the Well, now it's the 80s, and Brett is the greatest, and Bobby Bonds can play for everyone. 
Rose is at the vet Rusty again is a Met And the great Alexander is pitching again in Washington I'm talking baseball Like Reggie Cuisenberry Talking baseball Carew and Gaylord Terry Seaver, Garvey, Schmidt and by the blue If Cooperstown is calling it's no fluke They'll be with Willie, Mickey and the Duke. Willie, Mickey and the Duke. Say hey, say hey, say hey. It was Willie, Mickey and the Duke. Say hey, say hey, say hey. I'm talking with. Say hey, say hey, say hey.